Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, which will host the Louisiana Cajun Zydeco Festival this weekend at Armstrong Park, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which will join other southern cities with a civil axe-throwing venue, which is scheduled to open in August 2019. Tonight, we're joined by New Orleans Police Department Commander Nicholas Gernon. Commander Gernon joined the New Orleans Police Department in 2002 and worked night patrol in the 1st District before being promoted to burglary detective. He's worked as a narcotic and violent crime detective and from 2007 to 2009 as a homicide detective. In 2009, he was promoted to sergeant in the 8th District and rejoined Homicide as a sergeant in 2012. In August 2015, he left the Homicide Unit as the Section Commander and was promoted to Lieutenant in the 6th District. In November 2016, uh, he was again promoted to Commander and became Commander of the 8th District, overseeing the Central Business District, French Quarter, and Maroney Triangle. In the spring of 2019, Commander Gernon was appointed to the NOP to command the NOPD Crime Laboratory, which includes central evidence and property. Currently, the department is preparing to break ground on a state-of-the-art facility in the Tulane and Broad area near NOPD headquarters. Commander Gernon is proud to have worked in homicide because he was able to provide comfort to victims' families. He's married with one daughter, and he's also a graduate of Bonneville High School, which is important in New Orleans, but not everywhere else. <laughs> As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael and Commander Gernon. Good evening, you two. Good evening, Lisa. And did I get the high school wrong? <laughs> no, it's Bonneville High School. It's a good high school. Bonneville, okay. <laughs> Okay, um, that's a big. I don't think Michael understands it, but that's a big thing in New Orleans. What high school did you go to? I'm still asked that question. <laughs> well, we don't I mean, have to right? We just say, which school did you go to? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Um, well, Commander, I know I I used a lot of information from the bio that you sent me because I wanted to. 
you know, establish who we were who we were interviewing tonight. And you really actually have moved up in the ranks to commander at a relatively young age in, in NOPD. I haven't. I've been fortunate to have a lot of leaders that I was able to emulate throughout my career. And, you know, you, you take the best uh, the best that you can get from all your leaders and, you know, you leave behind some of their bad traits. And I was, I was just really fortunate to come up, you know, when I joined the police department, I didn't know anybody. None of my family had ever been in policing or law enforcement. So um, I kind of came in with this bright eyed, you know, bushy tail. I was going to change the world. I had no preconceived notions about it. You know, it was everything that I knew about it was from, um, you know, what the general public would know. So I I really was Mm -hmm. really fortunate to have, worked with some really good investigators over the years. And then, you know, I learned from them and I was able to uh, form my skills as, as well. Oh, it is. It's very impressive. Uh, very, very impressive. And uh, now first district, where is that? So that's mid city, the Treme um, seventh ward. Okay. The storm. <clears throat> that would have been the Iberville and the feet projects from Rampart to Carrollton. Um, Elysian mm-hmm. Fields to Calliope. So, you know, the Mid-City Treme area. It was a it was a pretty violent district back then. You know, we had some a lot of violence surrounding right. the, uh, the projects. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, areas over there that just really, they just needed help, right? There were, there were uh, mostly good folks just trying to make it through the day, right? But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were people that would prey on them and take advantage of them, unfortunately. Right. Okay, and then 6th District is... Central City, Lower Garden District. So when I was promoted out okay. of homicide, I got promoted to a lieutenant's position, and I took over as the assistant commander, which is a lieutenant's position, the lawns of the 6th District, which is um, from, say, Capitulis. It's a little triangle that runs up right. to Louisiana all the way up to Carrollton by Xavier University. Okay. Yeah, I, I lived on Britannia at one time and met several 6th District officers after a stolen car chase and shootout near Britannia and Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, the sixth so, district is always on. Never a dull moment over there in the sixth. They they've got a really no, dedicated not at all. And, and, yeah, and they've also got some really dedicated citizens over there too. It's generations and generations of people that lived in the same neighborhood. So, you know, there there's mm-hmm. really a lot of community support in that district, um, with the police officers and the community working hand in hand together. Right. And, of course, you've never been in the 4th District on the West Bank, which is where I live. No, ma'am. Um, I've only worked <laughs> murders over there, but I've never actually worked normal cases over there. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, we're we're a world unto ourselves as far as – The Algiers uh, Sheriff's Office is, is what the commander calls himself over there. He says he's the <laughs> chief of the Algiers Sheriff's Office. That is That is true. But when I was a teenager, I had somebody who, you know, a guy that was not taking no for an answer, and my parents were worried. And my mother said, well, what if he tries to follow you home from work? And I told her, I know where the 4th District Police Station is. That's where I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you didn't raise anybody dumb, Mom. So, but that is, and there's a lot of, there's a big sense of community, um, in all the, I mean, the Fourth District, New Orleans police officers come to our night out every year, and I mean, several of them will come, even if they stop by, say hello, have a have a hot dog, and go back on duty. 
Absolutely. So and it's Commander real Rocky nice. Over there is really doing. Yeah, the, the commander over there is doing really good work and a lot of community outreach to some of the um, the public schools over there. So he'll send officers to the school to teach kids how we lift fingerprints or send officers to the school with the mounted unit just to kind of, you know, build those relationships with our junior high and high school kids to let them know that we're humans too. So it's not that we're robots and we're not this, you know, faceless person behind a badge, but that, you know, they, right. they can trust us and they can have a conversation with us in a non-threatening manner so that maybe in the future if they need help, they'll be more willing to reach out to us. Right. Right. And they'll understand what you, what it is you do, because unfortunately there are bad apples that you have to deal with. Yep. So, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, that's what it is. And it, it makes it easier though. If, if everybody understands you're doing the job and you don't mean to offend them. You're not accusing them, but you, you know, you need to know certain things at certain times. Absolutely. And And honestly, uh, we, we can't, we, we couldn't do our jobs without the community's help. Right. I mean, we don't, we're typically not there when a crime occurs. You know, we come after, you know, if, if if we're going to solve a crime, it's because the community is going to solve it for us. We just get to be the people that write down, everything that happened and present the facts to a judge or a jury later on. But it's, it's really, we don't solve crimes without the community. Right. Exactly. Because if the, if the community doesn't give you the information, you don't know where to go or no direction to, to follow in order to, to do an investigation. And that would be any crime, not just a murder or a violent crime. It would be a burglary Yep. Yeah. yeah, I started off as a burglary detective, right? And I used, we used to joke around that, you know, nobody sees anything except for the cat and he ain't talking, right? So people are typically at work and they'll come home, their house has been burglarized. It's a pretty traumatic thing for somebody to come into your house. So, you know, we relied a lot on the neighbors and that was 15, 17 years ago. Now we rely a lot on surveillance video and surveillance cameras to help us. And even more so, um, you know, there's a real push to use DNA testing to um, assist us with property crimes as well, but at the end of the day, it really does come down to somebody saw something that was unusual and kind of gives us some direction to go in. Correct. Because a a DNA sample means nothing if you don't have a reference of a suspect on file or taken during the course of an investigation. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, I, I really, in my current position at the crime lab, and I, I believe this even before I went over there, I really do believe that although science is is really the future of policing, it will always take a bit of a human element to help us, you know, understand what the science is telling us, if you will. Correct. Correct. So, okay, we have a, some general topics, and um, I want this episode to really kind of educate listeners on what police are, what they aren't, what they do, and and kind of what their their job means. So I wanted to go into the role of patrol officers, or the re- roles of each specialty, so to speak. And starting yeah, with absolutely. patrol so, officers, their role. You know what what are what yeah. is their job duty? Yeah, so patrol officers are really the backbone of any police department, right? So they're 
They're usually the largest number of officers or patrol officers. Um, they are generalists. They can go on any call from a murder to a stolen car to a, you know, kid that ran away or won't go to school. I mean, so they're kind of, as, as opposed to most detectives in larger cities where they become specialists, patrol officers kind of have to learn how to handle the whole gamut of almost any kind of call. They get out there, and usually, even before they get there, obviously the 911 operator is the first point of contact for the, the citizens. And the decisions that the 911 operator makes to give the information, what kind of information they ask for, what kind of information they get, passes to the patrol officers. A lot of patrol officers, you know, they're the ones that those critical first moments that they're on the scene, even if it's not a hot scene, right? even if it's not a, a type of scene that is life or death, but it, it really depends on what they read that scene to be and what decisions they make. So I'll give you a good example. I, when I was in the 8th District, which is the downtown French Quarter um, area, you know, we, we, like most party cities, have um, human sex trafficking operations that will come through the city on occasion. So some mm-hmm. patrol officers went on a call for service. Uh, it was dispatched as a domestic violence call because somebody saw a man hitting his girlfriend. They got there just a week earlier. They had gone to a very brief, hour-long human sex trafficking um, awareness class, just some red flags, really quick, down-and-dirty stuff. And they were initially dispatched to a domestic violence call, but because they had just had the training, so it was fresh in their mind, they kind of knew, well, this is not a domestic violence call. This is a human sex trafficking victim, right? And this is probably her pimp, not her boyfriend. Red flags were going off. And so instead of taking the report as, you know, domestic violence, they made that really good early judgment call to say, let me dig beneath the surface a little bit, right? Let me start talking to some more people, interviewing more witnesses and things like that. And then they were eventually able to call out a uh, special victim section detective as opposed to a domestic violence detective and really kind of they made that victim feel as comfortable as they could but patrol officers are often the people who are going to dictate our success or our failures as a police department because they are the really the first person to get there interact with the victim they set the tone you know it's really hard to come back from somebody if the first person that got there was nonchalant or dismissal of you and your concerns mm-hmm. um, so they really are they're, they're the generalists the jack of all trades they do it all but they are extremely valuable, and good patrol officers are, are just, you know, commanders. Commanders fight over keeping good patrol officers on the street and keeping them, turning them into field training officers, so they can then pass on their skills to younger officers as they come on the job. All right, that is, and that sounds 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 true. And we get to see a lot of that on cops and live PD because they're that's their mostly what they do is following patrol people on patrol and you do get to see that in different departments across different jurisdictions. Yeah. Uh of yeah, and look, the, you know, the those, general those senior inform mm-hmm. and those senior informal <laughs> leaders on the patrol division are really just you know, they will set the tone for the next generation of police officers. You know, if they're doing it right mm-hmm. and showing the next generation how to do it right <clears throat> then then we're gonna have a good generation if they're cutting corners then you're going to have a lot of people that are learn how to cut corners so we're really we rely upon them and those frontline sergeants supervisors i mean it's often said right. sergeants are the most important position in the police department but i i think you can make a good argument for frontline officers as well okay all right and then detectives <clears throat> uh their role is more specialized 
and different yeah. departments are going to yeah. do it different ways. We're going to talk about NOPD structure. Uh, yeah, so in the New Orleans Police Department, detectives are specialized, and we, have a, we work off of a decentralized model, which means that we don't have, like, one big headquarters that everybody in the city works out of. <clears throat> we have eight separate districts, and each district has a platoon officers, which are the patrol officers. Each district will have a narcotics squad. They'll have a property crime squad, which would handle, like, thefts, burglaries, auto thefts, things of that nature. And then they'll have a violent crime squad, which will handle everything except for um, sexual assaults and homicides. And those are, those mm-hmm. are working out of headquarters. Um, but, you know, every district has, has that group of detectives, and that's really the core of those districts. Um, and then some districts have more specialized things than others based on where they're at. So, for instance, um, the 8th District, which is the French Quarter, also has a full-time mounted unit, right? So they're riding the horses on Bourbon Street throughout the quarter every night. Correct. Um, you know, and then Algiers, where you're at, that, off, that commander over there, he'll deploy uh, bicycle officers up on the Mississippi levee and behind the Batcher. Um, a couple times a week just because it's much easier for bicycle officers on pedal bikes to get up on the levee and to kind of see what's going on in the neighborhood than it would be if you were in a car. Okay. All right. I was not aware of that. Yep. That's probably yep. more in the point than on the river. Yeah, in the point and then somewhat down Patterson, but it's, it's he kind of deploys them where he's having his issues at, right? So think about mm-hmm. what you can see if you're up on the levee on a bicycle. You can see pretty far down each of those streets that run perpendicular to Patterson Road. So it gives his mm-hmm. um, officers mobility, but also uh, visibility and the ability to see what's going on in the neighborhood. Okay. All right. And then supervisors, you kind of touched on a little bit earlier with mm-hmm. uh, those would be the sergeants, uh, patrol, yep. and the different detective squads. Exactly. So you'll have uh, patrol sergeants which you call platoon sergeants, and then you'll also have uh, detective sergeants, right? So obviously they are exactly what their name says they are. They supervise the detectives, right? Um, and then those, you know, each detective will answer to his own detective sergeant, and if each platoon officer will answer to his own platoon sergeants, and they really, sergeants are really the ones that are supposed to be working hand-in-hand, that close and effective supervision that we talk about a lot, uh, that we talk mm-hmm. about internally a lot, ensuring that people are doing the right things for the right reasons, even when you're not there. Right. We, we were one of the very early adapters of body-worn camera technology. We, we started getting body-worn cameras in uh, 2011 or 12 maybe. So every patrol officer in the city and every patrol sergeant in the city wears a body-worn camera. Um, so almost all of our interactions with the public have some form of video uh, attached to them. Um, so our SWAT team wears them when they're going into houses to do high-risk warrants. Our mounted team wears them. The officers on the bicycles wear them. So, you know, they, they are really adding a very interesting layer to American policing in that that accountability is there. And I always say that if you have an officer that turns his camera on and then he did something silly, well, then I don't really want him to be an officer, right? Because if he's not even, you know, doesn't even have the wherewithal to not turn a camera on and do something silly, then we certainly don't want him mm-hmm. out there, you know, uh, interacting with the public. So you know, the cameras have really become a game changer in American policing in the way that the public interacts with us and that the way that some of our officers interact with the public. I mean, you know, a lot of times the public knows that you're turning your camera on. We have a right. 99.99% turn on rate because if you don't turn your camera on, the first time it doesn't get turned on, 
uh, would give you a day suspension, and the second time was a five-day suspension. So we have a very high compliance rate with turning the camera on. And, um, you know, it really kind of serves to temper everybody. And then if something happens, it's nice to have that unbiased uh, view as to what occurred. Right, right. And based on some of the PD cams that I've watched, people don't realize that police wear body cams because they try all sorts of things. And then the body camera yep. says, mm, nope, that did not happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially, you know, down the French Quarter, drunk people, they're not paying attention. And a lot of times maybe they don't remember what happened. So they just come up with a, a story out of the blue and then mm-hmm. we can always revert to the cameras to kind of show what what their perception was versus perhaps what reality was. Correct. And that and that can you know that can be nothing but positive down the road. Absolutely. I know some jurisdictions and some officers were resistant, but I think it the first time that it keeps your butt out of trouble or it keeps something from going yeah. bad, you're going to realize that's a good thing. I've seen officers now Absolutely. who say they activate their camera whenever they're dealing with the public, even if it's not for police action. If they're talking right, to me it. in the grocery store, they'll turn it on just to yep. – because you never know when it might come in handy. Were, right, and, and we, were such, we were very early adaptive, so we, like most police departments – the frontline officers were very resistant to uh, policing with body-worn cameras attached to them. We had all the same concerns, but after some time, when officers started to hear the story about all the people that the cameras saved, you know, rather than hurt, and all the people that the cameras proved right. that they also did do something incorrect, it just it just makes for a cleaner, easier environment. And you know, it's you know, I, I had a sergeant once who, when his cameras were first deployed, his officers, they were a proactive, hard-charging unit, right? And they were like, well, we can never do police work again. You know, this is going to shut us down. We're not able to do anything. And, he's, and he challenged them. He said, well, have you never made a legal constitutional arrest in your career? And they said, well, of course we have. He said, well, then just do that on camera, and you'll be fine, right? So it kind of shut down all mm-hmm. their their arguments until they were actually proved to themselves how beneficial the cameras were. But, you know, just act appropriately and you know we'll we'll be able to defend your actions correct more people in life should just wear body cameras <laughs> i agree i mean <laughs> i think just generally <laughs> throughout america <laughs> and there are people that need better mirrors uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> and then we have uh uh, and I, I, I neglected 911 operators, and I'm sorry. I, I should have included them because they are law enforcement. Um, they are, and they're really the uh, now, spear, right? So our officer's safety he, and security really starts from the minute that that 911 operator starts to ask that person a whole bunch of questions. And people often get frustrated because they don't realize that while they're asking all the questions and you know, citizens say, like, just send the police, send the police. They are sending the police. They don't need to get off the phone with you to then get on the radio with the police officers. We have dispatchers and we have 911 operators. And that 911 operator is tape typing as you're talking, right. speaking, and it's being sent over to the dispatchers so that they can dispatch simultaneous 
to your telling the operator what's going on so that as the officers are in route, we call it, right, on their way to the call, mm-hmm. um, they're constantly receiving updates saying, well, you know, the perpetrator's got a green shirt on and he's, he's armed with a handgun and now he's fleeing in a red car. So I've often heard people get frustrated and say, well, just send them and, and they'll say, ma'am, they're on their way, right? But right. keep asking these questions and there's a, there's a protocol that they go through to get as much information to the officers as possible so that our officers know what they're looking for because, I mean, if we don't ask you any questions, we could just walk right past the suspect as he's walking away and then he gets away, right? So it's really impressive that the public understands that as they're asking those questions, they're sending it to the officers in the field um, contemporaneously. Correct. And it's 911 operators who can remain calm and ask clear questions and relay clear information. They have to be that way. They, They know your issue or your problem is a weight on you, but they have to stay focused on relaying the information that you're giving them and getting the right information. And that is very important because in cases where 911 isn't able to get enough information can also put an officer in dangerous situation or a victim in an even more dangerous situation. Because an officer coming in blind, not knowing who is who, is going to be on edge. Absolutely, yeah. And that's why we ask questions that people say, say like, what what does it matter what I'm wearing? Well, I want to know if the victim's the guy with the red shirt or the green shirt, right? (laughs) So I know who am I going to to get information from and who am I going to to put handcuffs on. it's It's an important moment in the investigation when somebody calls 911 and starts to give that initial uh, description, path of flight, description of activity of what happened, description of suspects and things like that. And that all comes back to us in court. I mean, the first, almost the first person inevitably after opening statements that the prosecutors will put on the stand is the 911 operator and they replay the 911 call. So it's just, it's a very important part of the puzzle. Correct. And it's one people don't understand because I've seen, you know, comments about 911 calls and, people criticizing operators and uh, you know there have been a few that have not been stellar uh, yep. people but there have been others that are being criticized when they're doing the job that they're supposed to be doing yes ma'am That's, it's important to realize that you know police departments and public safety agencies in general we hire people right and we do everything we can to screen them and to make sure that we're hiring the right people but at the end of the day, we're still hiring people. So, you know, we will have imperfections. And I think it's important that you not only judge a department on the mistakes, be they egregious or, you know, minor mistakes that a person, an employee makes, but also on the department's response to that, not only dealing with that individual person and disciplining them, but also dealing with the system and seeing, like, was there something we could have caught earlier? to say that this person perhaps is not suitable for a career in law enforcement. And that's, that's something that I really wish we would focus more on a department's response to our deficiencies and what we're doing to correct them going forward rather than just the very easy top of the news story, day one kind of deficiency. Right. Uh, And I totally agree with that as well, because I think, uh, I think New Orleans Police Department, along with a lot of departments, have 
you know, been addressing more proactively uh, the flaws from the 70s, 80s, 90s that existed within various departments. Yes, ma'am. And and look, we're it, policing is changing. It absolutely is, and I, I completely expect the public to hold us to a high standard. We're public servants. We're the ones that should regain people's trust. But I think one of the ways that we regain people's trust is appropriately respond to problem employees and then look at the mm-hmm. systems that allowed them to remain on the job until something big happened and then look at the supervisors and look at the past performance and look at all the things that led up to that and see, did this department have a systematic failure or was this a individual that was an individual failure? And I think it's important to let departments do those I call them ethical autopsies, right? And let us work through those right. and come back to the public because, again, it's, we work for the public. We're not, we should not be um, opaque. We should be as transparent as possible to say, here's where we found the deficiencies. Here's where there were the breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Here's where discipline didn't work and policy didn't work and there was poor supervision, and here's the things we're going to do to correct this going forward. I mean, it's, it's learning from your mistakes, right? And if you're not learning from your mistakes, then you're not really growing. Right. But also I think it's it's also I think it's a little unfair sometimes a lapse of judgment even a minor one can be uh blown out of proportion. Yeah. Yeah, and, for, you know, for some people and I, that's human, you know, human people make the make mistakes and have it, instances of poor judgment, and they learn, and they go on, and they're not going to do it again. Yeah, and look, I think that we've got to look at was somebody making a conscious, deliberate decision to do something wrong, or did somebody make a judgment call in the moment? They thought they made the right decision. They didn't. So then we got to go back and look and say, did we not give them the proper training? Did we not give them the proper policies? Did we not give them the proper guidance and supervision? And what did the department do to fail that person? Because a lot of times it's snap judgment, snap judgment decisions, but it's also people think that they're making the right decision and they didn't. And you know, if you can learn and grow from it and go forward, fine. That's what we want discipline to be is to be a corrective action so that we don't make these same poor decisions over and over. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. And um, then the role of the crime lab and medical examiner coroner. I kind of put those mm-hmm. together because that's your scientific evidence yes. area. Yes. So the crime lab has – our crime lab has several different divisions, right? So the first one is the crime scene investigators. That's the people that go out to the scene. They work hand-in-hand hand with the detectives and the investigators or the officers. And basically the officer or the detective will say, I, I think I need X, Y, Z. I think I need to get DNA off that gun. Or I need to try and lift fingerprints off that stolen car. And then it's up to the crime scene investigator to determine the correct scientific technical procedure to go about lifting those fingerprints, what to go about properly collecting, packaging, and then eventually storing that DNA at the evidence room. And then so they work hand-in-hand with the investigator saying, here's what I think I need for my case, and the crime scene investigator saying, well, here's the proper way to collect that so that we can have a good, you know, uh, sound scientific based principles on how we did this. And then working with the coroner's office down here, it's, it's a coroner. The coroner's office determines um, manner of death, 
right? So whether it's accidental, suicidal, unexplained, um, natural, or homicide. And then the coroner's office, I mean, they're really, we've got some very good, we unfortunately have very experienced, but some very good pathologists that work at the coroner's office. And they're really, they're very good at helping you understand trajectory. Was he sitting down, standing up? You know, at what angle did the bullet go into? Is there stippling on the wound? It was a close contact, loose conduct, intermediate contact, unknown um, distance. You know, they, they can't give you exact distance determinations. That would be something that a firearms examiner would need to do. But they can certainly tell you loose contact, close contact, intermediary, or unknown. Um, and that can really help mm-hmm. you understand when people try and make self-defense claims, um, whether or not that's a viable claim, or when you're trying to just figure out, like, where was the victim in relationship to the gun being fired? That's an important thing. Or, or at, at another case where, you know, what kind of knife was it? Was it a serrated edge knife or a straight edge knife, right? You can see those little teeth marks on defensive wounds on people's hands. So it's just mm-hmm. they really do help, and they will help your investigators. I call them investigators because it could easily be the frontline patrolman on a minor case like an auto theft, or it could be a detective on a major case like a murder. They'll help those investigators understand the science and the application of the science and what the scene in the body is telling you. I mean, because it's all bodies of evidence, right? Um, so they're, they're really – they're very well-schooled at that. Unfortunately, they're very experienced at it. Um, but they, they, they're an invaluable resource. I used to – when I was the commander of the homicide unit, I would always say that, you know, you've got to make you, – your autopsies, you'll learn more about how your victim died at your autopsy than you will from – some of your witnesses, because witnesses are traumatized, they're half paying attention, but your your pathologist can really tell you and give you a good scientific right. grounding as to what might have occurred. Okay. Yeah, because witnesses' perceptions of what happened and how it happened and when and where can be skewed just from you know how they communicate as well as how they re- how good they remember things. Or how yeah, the brain and, works and, in, in remembering trauma. Right. And one of the best examples I've heard about this is um, a, a district attorney uses this in board year often. He'll say, you know, when we go to a Mardi Gras parade, right, because we're in New Orleans, we go to a Mardi Gras parade. If I brought 10 people to the Mardi Gras parade and then asked them to get on the stand and testify about what they saw, you know, the band heads might talk about how the bands were playing good. The kids might talk about what kind of throws they got. Um, you know, other people might talk about how big the floats are. Other people might just talk about their friends that they saw on the floats. Other people might talk about, you know, what they were cooking on the Nutri-Ground side. So although all 10 of us might have seen the same parade, we we remember things differently. We focus on different mm-hmm. things based on our own experience, perception, training, um, our own life, our own upbringing, things of this nature. So, you know, 10 different people, I'll tell you, 10 different mighty, uh, um, parades. And none of them could be lying, but they might tell you ten different things. Right, right. But you can use, and and sometimes I think detectives have to do this. You use each of the individual accounts to try and put together the whole picture. Absolutely, and then you also use those eyewitness accounts and see how they marry up to the science, right? And, and right. what could be completely out of left field as opposed to what um, what marries up to the science, and then you, you use that right. to simply present your case to the trier of fact, typically a jury. I mean, I 
I used to never say that it was not our job to win a case. And if you talk to district attorneys, it's not their job to win a case. It's our job to present our investigation to a jury, typically, and allow them to decide uh, what they feel is the proper verdict in that case. We should simply be the chronicler of fact. And and I know that sounds simplistic and naive, and in some respects it is, but I often would tell detectives we are simply the chronicler of fact. Let us just write it down how it happened, all the information that we've gathered, everything, right? The Brady, the Giglio, Kyle's information that's beneficial to the defense. It is our job to document it all and then simply allow the district attorney's office to present it to a jury, and then they can make that final judgment on that person. Correct. And I think that's another misconception that a lot of lay people have is they think that police and district attorneys are out to put people in prison, no matter what the right. cost. And, yep, and look, some of that is certainly based in some realities, especially in the past, right? We've done some – we as law enforcement have done some things that have caused us to violate the trust of the public, um, especially the sins of our fathers, right? which is why I think mm-hmm. that science is so important going forward in policing to allow us to give some empirical evidence to that, that witness or to right. that, you know, that investigation. Correct. But yeah, because the science will, you know, eventually corroborate or even not everything, but it, it's corroborating an aspect here and an aspect there. Is is helpful. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Absolutely. Kyle's, and I worked with a family friend of the victim in that case. Really, and I will never uh, forget during a while. when he, uh, when he got the call that the woman had been killed, and he was a fifty-something, sixty-something-year-old man. His wife called him at work. He sat in his desk and cried for the rest of the day. Yeah. And, look, and you know, we have to remember it that was, these are not. I, it, it was, yeah, I, I it was traumatic just that. Yeah. I've, I've yeah, always had my doubts about the exculpatory evidence. In that case, as to whether it was because it's strong enough to actually have made a difference or... at trial, yeah, right. And part of that, I think, is that one of the quote alternative suspects was killed by members of Kyle's family, and then this alleged evidence came out, so he wasn't around to. Dispute, refute it, right? We refute it, <laughs> or you know, disavow and it. Other, and the other problem but with that's, this, some of these cases is, is there's if you let's say you get an appeal twenty thirty years later, you go to a retrial, your witnesses are gone, right? A lot of people die mm-hmm. after thirty years. Um, you've got you're reading transcripts into the in front of the jury, which doesn't have the same impact as a live person there. It's hard to judge people from transcripts. So, I don't know. It's, 
it's a tough judgment call in these cases, but I would certainly, certainly want to err on the side of caution in that the innocents don't go to prison for the remainder of their natural days. I remember one of my first days in homicide, one of the seasoned veteran guys told me, he goes, look, when you seek somebody a conviction on second-degree murder in the state of Louisiana, that's no probation, no parole, no suspension, saying that's the remainder of your natural days. He says, you're asking a jury to let somebody die in prison in 50, 60 years. He said, so you better make sure you got it right. And that's kind of something right. I carry with me. I mean, the detective's name, Greg Hamilton, he's still up there. He, he kind of gives a speech to all the new guys. You're not, you're asking to take somebody's life away. And that's an awesome responsibility that somebody's life could be taken away. Not literally, not a death penalty, but even a secondary murder on your investigation. So, so you better get it right. You better not cut corners. Correct. You better not leave anything out that could help prove that that person was not involved in this crime. Correct. And we'll, and we'll we'll talk about that aspect a little bit more uh, later when we go into the constitutional principles. Now, district attorney's um, office, it's kind of attorneys and investigators. Uh, the attorneys yes. present yes. the case. Do the investigators supplement what NOPD detectives have already done, or do they have a, a totally separate role? That's an interesting question. So they've had some great investigators over there. Jim O'Hearn, a friend of mine, recently died of cancer. He was a true investigator over there, and he, he worked a, a serial killer case that I the guy beat me. He killed four women over a three-year period. Two of them were my cases. I never connected them. I never solved it. Jim worked it, solved the case, got the guy to confess, brought the case to the grand jury. He eventually pled guilty to one, and now he's fighting up the other three. Um, that is not a typical DA's investigator. A typical DA's investigator works to help the district attorney prepare that case for trial, right? So tracking down witnesses, which is a really a a very difficult thing five, six years after a murder to go track down a witness. Um, right. Helping them get the evidence prepared, helping them understand, because most district attorneys investigators are former cops, and a lot of them are former homicide detectives, um, helping them understand the evidence and helping them understand the police, especially some of your less experienced DAs, helping them understand the police procedures and the proper way to do things, and maybe some of the lines of questioning. Um, so a, a good investigator is is really just as important as a good district attorney prosecuting the case because he or she can help that district, can make up for maybe that district attorney's shortfalls or shortcomings and can also um, ensure that they have everything they need to go forward. But they're, it's, it's rare that you have one like Jim putting a case together. Um, it's more often they're helping prepare that case for trial in, in a whole okay. myriad of ways. Okay. So in a in a way, picking up where you all left off and supplementing, for example, if a, a suspect who never talked to police has a defense and alibi witnesses at trial, it, the DA's investigator would be the one to follow up and talk to those alibi witnesses if they're willing to speak to him. Typically, they would have that original detective go back to it. Um, okay. In our trials okay. here in Louisiana, especially murder trials, secondary murder. Now, first degree murder trials could last weeks, but typically our murder trials in Louisiana are four to five days, right? Because we do all of our motions pre-trial, months and years ahead of time, 
unlike some jurisdictions. Right. So if if somebody puts out an alibi witness and things like that, um, the DA's investigator may be sent out to do that. But because the detective and the DA often prep together so much for the case anyway, if they they may choose to send out the original detective to try and knock down an alibi or if they need more information. But one of the unique things that we do in Orleans Parish, and I realized it was unique until a couple of years ago, not a lot of jurisdictions do it, although some, but not a lot, is that before we accept a lot of these major crimes, so murders, rapes, armed robberies, shootings, um, illegal discharge of weapons, those kinds of cases, uh, we'll have what's called a charge conference where the detective sits down with the um, attorney reviewing the case. Typically, the detective supervisor's there. The top brass at the district attorney's office is there, and they'll go through the case methodically. Like, here's our theory of the crime. Here's what supports it. Here's what refutes it. Often, here's shortcomings in the case, and then it's it's literally a session where people are like, okay, well, can you go talk to this guy and see what he says? Or it may mention that there was a red car in the scene, did you see if your suspects are connected to that red car? So before you indict, you can often address some of those unanswered questions because none of us are perfect, right? And mm-hmm. I might think I put together a great case, but when somebody else reads it, they may have questions. And I want somebody to ask those questions because if they have questions, then a jury's going to have questions five, six years from now when it's going to be even more difficult to answer those questions. So that's, that's one of the things that we do was almost I've done it as long as I've known in Orleans Parish is that um, the DA's office will call in the detectives and their supervisors and whoever else might be involved in the case to present the case with the DA um, and then let the okay. upper brass of the district's office kind of pick the case apart. All right. Whereas I think in a lot of jurisdictions, the district attorneys get a, you know, kind of a cold record and then they take it to a grand jury or or file information based on that cold record. So that is an interesting aspect. Maybe that's something to do with the Napoleonic code instead of common law of doing I, it that I, way. I can tell you other jurisdictions from other states have also come in to see this model. Um, you know, we've been doing it forever, but a lot of parishes don't do it um, because they just don't have the pressing caseload that we might have here. So maybe, you know, a detective might only catch one murder in some other jurisdiction where he or she can mm-hmm. really run that case into the ground and close all the, you know, doors. Whereas in a, in a jurisdiction that has a larger caseload, it's better to have a couple eyes review that to make sure that nothing slipped through the cracks. I think it's just a, the more people that can review that case, I think the better because it gives that defendant um, a better opportunity to defend himself. And it gives that victim's family a better opportunity to ensure that a complete and thorough and just investigation was done. Mm-hmm. Correct. And I noticed on first 48, not only in New Orleans, but most of the jurisdictions that they follow, uh, the homicide units, two detectives may catch the case, but everybody helps. Everybody helps. Everybody suggests yep. leads to follow or, or avenues to pursue. Um and I've, I've noticed on y'all's investigations on first 48. Yep. So here in New Orleans, we've got we have one homicide section that has four squads, and each squad has a sergeant and five or six officers. And when what somebody on your squad catches, the whole squad goes out, we work it together, and then that lead detective might be the one that's writing reports, doing most of the investigation. But 
you're bouncing ideas off your squad bank because you know, five or six heads are certainly better than one, right? And it just gives you the opportunity because these cases are so complex and so large and really so important, right? That to have mm-hmm. the ability to have somebody, a team of people helping the lead detective on the case, I think is, is a really invaluable resource. Correct. And it's, it's a very impressive, uh, an impressive thing to see. Uh, again, not, you know, once per, oh, well, let me check his social media page and go to Facebook and, oh, yeah, there he is. And um, he's right. actually getting leads. And that's a great thing is because people, some people can't stop posting on Facebook. And so we, they're posting we, uh, things on really, Facebook that they shouldn't be posting sometimes. <laughs> absolutely. We really appreciate when um, offenders give us almost hand us evidence on a silver platter. We we really do appreciate that. Um, and, you know, some, uh-huh. of the, some of the cases we're involved in, then, people are doing it to brag about, you know, to gain status in their environment, in their community. So if, if you right. do something and – you don't brag about it, then you never did it, right? Um, like right. The, like one of the best attorneys in the city I know says, if it ain't paper, it's vapor, right? So if you didn't document what you did in a homicide investigation, it didn't happen. Well, if you're a, uh, involved in that lifestyle and you didn't document what you did with your friends, then it, perhaps it didn't happen. So we're very uh-huh. – you know, we, we encourage people to document their criminal activities in a public forum at any opportunity that they're given. <laughs> Yeah. So, and it's helped, you know, it's helped you in interrogations because they don't know that you know what you know. Right. It has. And it's, you know, I used to really enjoy being in the interrogation room, um, kind of playing that chess game with them, knowing what you know and maybe not knowing everything they know because nobody knows Mm -hmm. the crime better than the person who committed it. But it was it was always kind of thrilling to me to how um, watch how they were confronted with facts, and and I wasn't some stellar interrogator. I think I was I was probably a maybe a B B plus right. But it's just I I enjoyed being in the room, and I like I always like to talk to them to to the guys and kind of just you know, just have a casual conversation before you got down to business and and really just mm-hmm. kind of get to know them so that you could have a better understanding as to what their cues are. Right. You were probably always the good cop, though. That's the impression that I get from you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to be the bad cop. <laughs> and so you're always, no, it's okay. Can I get you a drink? Are you all right? Is it warm enough in here? And then he'll leave somebody you know else to yell at him. You know why cop, Right. It, everybody it uses builds the rapport. It's an old thing because it works. It works. Everybody uh-huh. uses it because it works. It does. It does. So, all right. Um, And then training, um, a lot of it's hands-on, but uh, patrol officers, what does the the NOPD Academy do? I mean, I've heard that people are poached from NOPD Academy to other jurisdictions in Louisiana. So our academy is over a thousand hours. It's a six-month academy, and then after six months, you do a 16-week 
field training program with four different field training officers so that you can get a different style and a different, you know, vibe from each one. You'll go to, uh, to a number of different districts during that time. So all total, it's 10 months until you're allowed to be in the police car by yourself, right? And then you'll do a year probationary period, and then at the end of a year we decide if you've demonstrated the qualities that we believe are necessary to be a normal police officer. And then you'll do some time on the street before you're even allowed to begin to consider applying to become a investigator or a detective, if you will. Um, and then once you become a detective, you have to do a, a week's-long training on just basic investigations. And most of that is interrogation and ensuring, ensuring the rights of the accused. Um, all of our interrogations are audio and videotaped from before the moment the person walks into the room until after they leave the room. Because we don't want there to be any kind of question as to what was said or done. We absolutely right. reject the notion of pre-interviews where you talk to the guy first, get a story, and then turn the tape record on. run. I think that it's important for a judge or a jury to have that complete interview present so that they can decide if that person was treated appropriately or if there was any kind of inappropriate um, activity within that interrogation room. So. It's, right. it's, uh, it, it goes, a lot of it goes back to training and to the policies that we've adopted in the last five or six years. Right. Now, how long on that policy? Policies, I'm sorry. Uh, how long on that policy? Because I know, I guess as technology has become more readily available and less expensive yeah. and better quality, yeah, can you imagine, it's like, been easier. Like 20 years ago. Right, 20 years ago, surveillance systems were certainly not what they were now, right? So now it's all stored in the cloud. Um, but it was really consent decree-driven, um, and it was a it's a good policy to have because for the most part, officers are not doing anything inappropriate in the interrogation room, so why not record the entire, entire interrogation? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it gets uploaded to the cloud, and then the defense attorneys and the DAs or the DA can share it with the defense attorney during discovery um, through the cloud, and people can download and you can kind of judge for yourself whether we acted appropriately or not. But there's no more he said, she said, or or questions as to what was said or what the inflection was or perhaps you know with the context. Right, right. And how long has that been the policy? Uh, since the inception, since the consent decree kind of um, was implemented, so probably about 2012 was when we really okay. started to um, implement some of those consent decree-driven changes. Okay. All right. And then supervisors, uh, they have in addition to police academy, detective training, or if they aren't detectives, if they're patrol supervisors, are they risen in the ranks of patrol? I guess this is a question. Yeah, so, and what kind of training do they have? So they'll they'll take a test to become a sergeant. It's graded by outside independent lieutenants and sergeants from other agencies coming in and grade you. And then prior to us appointing any supervisors here, uh, we will send you to 120 hours of leadership training. It's based on um, – training out of West Point. LAPD and West Point put together this leadership training package back in probably the late 2000s, you know, 2007 or 8. And it's a three-week class, um, one week a month for three months in a row. So almost everybody's supervisor in the department has been to it, and we've sent almost every 
person that passed the sergeant's exam that has not been promoted yet to it. Now we're starting to send frontline officers, and we're sending a number of frontline officers. So 120 hours of leadership training, and then once you get promoted, you'll do a 40-hour training class on just general supervisory techniques, you know, how to work the new systems and things like that. And then every year, officers go back for 40 hours of in-service training, legal updates and things like that. Supervisors go back for 40 hours of in-service training, and then you also do an additional eight hours of firearms training, additional eight hours of um, driver's training. So, and then okay. there's other training opportunities throughout the year, based if you're in a specialized unit. So detectives do detective legal updates in addition to their 40 hours of regular officer legal updates. So, you know, the there is an individual in the city that likes to say that the department really is based on PTSD and its policy. If you have a good policy, the next step mm-hmm. is T, training. And if you have a good training, the next step is S for supervision. And then if you have a good supervision, all those things are appropriate, then you should start looking at disciplining somebody when they did something wrong. But if somebody makes a mistake, you got to look at policy, training, supervision before you start looking at discipline. Okay. That makes sense. And it is uh, – it's, uh, it's ever-evolving and ongoing and – uh, you you don't just get out of the police academy and that's it. You're done. No. You're always, no, I think, you're, striving you're... to improve. And and that's really what a professional is, right? It's the difference between a profession and a job. That a profession, you know, as a professional, you take pride in your profession. You're always learning. And the best practices of 2019 will not be the best practices in 2020. So we've got to continue looking for new ways to improve this police department and every in policing in general throughout America. Right. All right. And then um, this is another thing. What kind of equipment do, for example, patrol officers, what do they carry? So on their person, obviously they're wearing a vest underneath their uniform. Um, They'll have a pistol, radio, handcuffs. We no longer carry pepper spray. Um, but we do carry um, electric control weapons, so tasers, common name, right? Handcuffs, batons. Um, they'll also have their body-worn cameras, a big part of their equipment nowadays. And then in uh, most of our patrol cars, not most, in about half of our patrol cars, we have um, patrol rifles in the event that they get into an active shooter situation where they need that. And then the patrol cars themselves are just chock full of technology, right? It's not just a an old Chevrolet Caprice with lights and sirens anymore. I mean, the patrol cars have computers in them in which they're able to run uh, individuals' criminal histories, check for warrants. Dispatch is, allowed to, is able to send you information on the call you're going to. Um, mm-hmm. They have GPS trackers. Our, our body-worn cameras are now connected to our in-car cameras, so when you turn on your lights and sirens or when you turn on any one of those cameras, all of the cameras turn on front and back. Um, you know, there's... There's low jack antennas that can track stolen cars. It's just the technology in police cars nowadays is, is incredible. They can do the reports in there. It, but if you think about it, a police officer's vehicle is his or her traveling office, right? It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. all the technology you have in your office. It is literally their office. So you've got to put everything that you would think that you need in an office into that patrol car. Right. Now, do they also they carry? I'm sure at like evidence bags and different types of where in cases yeah, so where our, they collect the evidence rather than calling CSI. 
Yes. So they'll carry a limited amount of that. Most, um, if, if it's evidence that needs to be DNA, they're calling out CSI. Um, they okay. also have fingerprint equipment that most patrol officers can fingerprint on their own. Um, we're starting a pilot program where we're going to allow uh, patrol officers to collect DNA from um, low-level, not low-level, but nonviolent crimes, right? Mm-hmm. So they've got all the tools that are necessary because they can't run back to the office every time they need something. They're on a scene, they need what they need, and you know that's that's how they work it. But um, right, yeah, most evidence collection in the field, if it's a high-level case, right? It's shooting, stabbing, robbery, things like that, well, the crime lab's going to come out and get it. But if it's somebody threw a brick through your window, you know, nobody got hurt, something like that, that also in the field is going to collect that. So he's going to have gloves, he's going to have a bag and things of that nature so that he can, he or she can ensure that they are uh, properly um, handling that evidence. Okay. And they'll they'll be, of course, probably trained by the crime lab and, in, in, you know, how to do it. Yeah, and they get those, okay. those updated training. Um, and you know, we're fortunate. One of the really, one of the better instructors at the academy who does the ongoing training for the officers was also like one of our best CSIs in the city. So he's really passionate about ensuring that officers are trained in the proper collection and documentation of evidence, as to avoid cross contamination and mm-hmm. uh, and things of that nature when officers are collecting the field. So he's he's really passionate about. It. He does a lot of research on it. Uh, he teaches at other police departments on how to um, properly collect and package evidence. So we're we're really fortunate to have him um, passing on those techniques to our frontline officers. Okay. And then detectives, what do they carry any type of equipment kits to say, you know, if they're talking to somebody in the field and CSI isn't on scene, can they swab for gunshot residue or swab a, an item for DNA or collect fingerprints or things of that nature? So that's a good question. So I will say the most important thing that detective carries is typically his pen, his notepad, and a tape recorder, right, or a digital recorder. It's, nobody uses tape anymore. I'm dating myself, but a digital recorder, right? Because detectives <laughs> are really – right. Detectives are really chronicling what people are telling them, and they're chronicling the scene, and they're writing, you know, taking meticulous notes. So that's really the the three most important things detectives will carry. Um, Like I said, we're doing a pilot program to have detectives learn how to collect DNA from uh, nonviolent cases. So some of the some very select detectives in the near future will have DNA collection um, items, so swabs, uh, gloves, masks, uh, sterile water. Um, right. Some detectives that were fingerprint certified, for instance, when I was a detective, I was fingerprint certified and I was working on residential burglaries. I would dust my own scenes. Um, violent crime detectives will do very little of that because they'll call out the specialists. They'll call out the CSIs to mm-hmm. do that because the stakes are higher, right? If I'm, right. If I'm working a murder, the stakes are higher than if I'm working a bicycle theft. So um, they'll, they'll get those specialists in there to do that. And that's what most detectives will defer to the CSIs to allow them to come out. And the CSIs have more equipment and resources because they have all sorts of different latent print development tools, um, all sorts of tools in their vans that detectives just don't have the access to and wouldn't use right. sometimes a year or the CSIs are using a couple times a week. So, um, you know, a lot of times detectives will not 
collect their own evidence. They want to allow the specialists to do that. But like I said, notebook, pen, digital tape recorder. That's, recorder. That's the three most important <laughs> things. Yeah. Yep. Right. And, you know, also that's another interesting thing um, that, that has come up a few times in different cases I've researched. A detective telling a CSI, I need evidence that he would the, the this suspect was here that the victim was there that uh ties the victim and the suspect together that doesn't necessarily mean that the CSI is going to find that evidence but you're just directing the Correct. that's the detective directing the CSI as to you know what kind of evidence we're looking for to try and figure out what happened Absolutely, and you know the detectives will often have the luxury of knowing what witnesses have told their colleagues, uh, perhaps what surveillance video has shown us. So they'll say, "Hey, look, I need that DNA," and then that CSI will figure out the best way to collect DNA from that, or I need that fingerprint, or I need that photograph, and there'll there'll be a discussion as to what that detective thinks that she needs, and then what that crime scene investigator thinks that is the best technique to collect that evidence. Correct. Now, what would happen if you say you wanted a photograph of an item of evidence on the ground and then somebody else grabs the CSI and says, well, wait, take a picture over there, and somebody doesn't get back to the photograph of the evidence on the ground? What's the – I mean, I'm sure that happens. Yep. Yep, um, that's why you have what is the protocol? Okay. Yeah, that's why there's a lead a lead detective, and he or she will really dole out the responsibility. So, our 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 um, Department of Regulations are pretty clear: the lead homicide detective and or her supervisor are in charge of homicide scene. Right? Not the superintendent, not the chief, not the district commander. That lead detective and her supervisor are in charge of the scene. So, that lead detective will tell um, their partner, "You, you know." I need this and this and this done. Can you work with the crime lab and document and help them document doing it? And then they'll tell another person, can you take some detectives and go do a canvas in the neighborhood for video and witnesses? And it's almost, I used to think of it like a conductor in an orchestra. The lead detective is the conductor in the orchestra on the scene. And they're really directing all the trumpets and violins and drums and everybody to kind of come together and play some semblance of a song. And then everybody at the end of the night reports back to that lead detective, typically in the form of um, typed emails and memos and things of that nature as to what they did, what they found, uh, who they talked to. If they took interviews with people, they'll tell them, you know, here's a copy of the interview. If they interrogated people in the room. So to me, the scene was always the most important thing to document on the homicide unless you had a suspect in custody. If you had a suspect, then there was the lead detective needed to go talk to the suspect. But you can always go back and rewatch videos of witness statements and things of that nature, but you can never go back and recreate that scene. You only get one opportunity to work that scene correctly. So I always felt like the lead detective needs to take the role in documenting his or her scene and then dole out all the other things that need to be done, like the canvas and evidence collection by the crime lab and, you know, talking to witnesses and things of that nature. Okay. And in cases where we see things fall through the cracks, it, it may be because that organizational uh, structure is not something that particular department 
used at the time. Could be, or it could just be the culture of the department. So there's some departments where, and and look, we've 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 certainly been guilty of this in the past. I, I think that through the use of a lot of peer intervention training, we're getting past this. But I've certainly I know of several cases, high-profile national cases, not New Orleans cases, where the homicide detective was infallible, so nobody could tell him or her that the emperor was wearing no clothing, right? So they they just made the assumption, well, he or she must know this because they're the detective. They're in charge of everything. And, you know, nobody can know everything. Nobody can be infallible. Right. So we've right. got more of a team situation going on here where everybody knows their role, and, and any member of the team communicates with any other member of the team. And the squad sergeant is almost like the coach, right? He, he, he or she is the, the team coach and making sure that, you know, the team is working in concert together. Right. Okay. And then um, I was going to go into supervisors and crime lab equipment, but I'm not going to go crime lab equipment. We only have about an hour left. <laughs> and I realize <laughs> they have way more toys <laughs> than that. There's a, certainly there, – we've – our crime scene investigators are advanced, and I didn't even get to that section, right? So we just talked about crime scene investigators, CSIs in the field. There's advanced crime scene back at the lab doing lab work. There's the chemistry lab that does all the drug testing. There's the firearms lab that does all the tool mark impressions and firearms examinations and comparisons, diamond. Um, and then, you know, we're building a new DNA lab, a, a new crime lab that's going to have a DNA lab. Um, so there's just, so many facets of a crime lab that you can you can almost you can spend a semester or two two in. hours right right exactly and they are there are officers but then they're also scientists are yes. there are lay people and, and, and they're also a lot scientists. Of them are scientists correct so okay. a lot of my people that work in my lab were were never officers they are. Okay. For instance, everybody that works in my drug chemistry lab are chemists, right? And they're using uh, GCMS gas um, chromator, mass spectrometer machines, and they're they're mm-hmm. doing the testing. And um, a lot of my firearms examiners, I want to say a lot, almost all but one, are either officers or retired officers who got really specialized in this field and then became scientists, right? Um, all of my crime scene investigators are scientists. They're not officers. They're not commissioned officers. And that that's kind of changed over the years. And we used to have them almost all were officers. Now they're all scientists. Um, and okay. departments do it differently. Like some departments are all, they're called civilians, all civilian scientists. And some departments are all commissioned officers that have gotten the specialized training. I think the important thing is that as long as the person has the proper training, proper policies, and the desire to do it, you know, as long mm-hmm. as we train them properly, it doesn't matter if they started off in the police academy or college lab if they're testing drugs, right, or if they're doing CSI. I think in every department, and I can hear my colleagues throughout America screaming at me because they're going to defend their whatever they're doing in their department. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that there's a good case to be made for either one. Right. All right. And then the the NOPD policies and procedures manual. I downloaded this fourteen hundred page tone, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was very impressed. A, I was reading topic. through it. Uh, yes, but you know it's it's great 
um, that it shows at least since 2012 the the department really is evolving with the times of you know changing the way policing is done and a lot of the topics that you and I are talking about are things that came to me as I was reviewing the manual yeah, so, and it's interesting to watch the transformation of this department so just this Thursday and Friday coming up, we're having a conference where 60 different agencies from all over America are coming to learn about some of the things that we've done to turn this department around, including several instructors from Quantico at the FBI Academy, right? And, and troubled and not troubled departments from all over the country. I mean, it's, you know, we did the same thing last fall with about 60 or so agencies that sent down about 120, 150 people or so and had a two-day exploration as to some of our our gains. And that's why I think it's important to remember that 2019's best practices are not going to be 2025's best practices. You can't sit on your lines, right. right? Technology changes, science changes. We find better ways to do things. There's some really exciting things happening in crime labs throughout the country that are being piloted now that in five years could certainly be a best practice and in 10 years could be a common practice. And it's important mm. that we don't lose sight of the fact that you can't check the box and say we're done. You know, we've always got to continue right. to, to grow. And, and that's part of working with professionals who always want to continuously improve themselves. Right. And then another question, reporting requirements. Um, some people – have I think a, a little bit of an unrealistic idea of what has to be reported and what doesn't. For example, if you're sitting at your desk in homicide and you your phone rings and you pick it up and you answer it and they're calling for 8th District burglary, you transfer the call. You don't have to write a report that you got a call from so-and-so on such-and-such a date at such a, such a time, calling for burglary. Right. We want to get you to the right department, right? So if Correct. you called Amazon to talk to somebody in the refund department, they wouldn't. They, you don't want to be sent to the sales department, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's we're a big we're, we're you know a department of eleven hundred fifty yeah. people. We're trying to get you to the right person so that we can resolve whatever your concerns are um, without a lot of Correct. jumping through hoops and. A report will be written by burglary in the 8th District. Correct. Absolutely. And initially it will be written by that patrol officer, and then a burglary detective will conduct a follow-up investigation, and he or she will report their findings in the report. Or say this is somebody calling in with information about a burglary that happened, that he didn't talk to the patrol officers, but he saw somebody. Um, I don't know – you're probably familiar with a case out of Wisconsin where a person who worked in the jail received a phone call and he passed it on to a detective. He did not write a report. And many years later, he was criticized for not having written a report about having received that phone call. Yep. Which so he remembered receiving. Right, but right. Um, so he's trying to get that source of information to the proper person to document, and I think that that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So that's that's something. Um, I think people have an idea that, you know, every little thing, an officer, a detective, a a supervisor, a commander, everything you do from the time you walk in the door in the morning until the time you're done in the evening, that you have to write a report about it. Yeah, I think that there's certainly some things that just don't rise to the level. Like if you call and say, hey, I have information on burger at one, two, three, four, five, Royal. Okay, great. So let me get you the burger section. I think that you make a good point there. Yeah. And that's, but you, like I said, you, you don't have to write a report that you got a call about this information. No, and, and typically you know, that, that's acceptable. Say, you know, they, that. Received, they received information from, you know, officer so and so. And to contact Mr. Jones, who stated the following, right? So it's it almost right. gets documented right. just as part of the regular course of how did you get this person's information? Right. So, but yeah, it's it's interesting. People, some people think that, and sometimes you know, uh, notes were another thing. I didn't really include those on the on the thing, but um, I don't know what the policy is with NOPD now. But I know even working for attorneys. You know, notes are something, if you don't use them, they're not discoverable. So if you take notes and you write your report, then you don't keep the notes. <laughs> so we've we've um, changed our position on that. So we now okay. maintain our notes in our case file, and we okay. will turn them over to the state who can then determine if they're discoverable or not. And you know we have consent agree monitors that will come in and watch an interrogation on a video, and if they see you taking notes, they'll say, "Okay, now let me see your notes." Um, and it's one of the things mm-hmm. that we judged on. So we've, you know, we've certainly um, changed the culture of this department in that, you know, in order to be completely transparent and to also just ensure that there was not something there that was exculpatory that tends to prove mm-hmm. innocence, not guilt. Um, We've taken the stance that we should maintain all of that in the event that it's needed. Correct. Okay. And a lot of times now they're just scanning them and uploading it to the digital case file, and then it just doesn't have to sit somewhere anymore. It's it's all in the cloud. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, but then, but unfortunately, sometimes notes can be misconstrued. Mm-hmm. Yep. I see this in. I think so. I've seen you... this in many cases uh, uh, that I've researched where. Lay people are interpreting notes. Right. Yeah, I agree, and that's why it's important that your report give the context to those notes, so that and then you obviously can go to court later and explain um, what they meant. Now, what you you know, if it all comes out in the first trial, then I think it's appropriate. I think that where we run into problems in law enforcement is when we don't turn it over and it gets found 20 years right. later and there's this aha gotcha moment and nobody can give context anymore because it's 20 years later and nobody really understands or remembers what was written. Maybe the detective's retired and gone off to you know Costa Rica or something and you just there's nobody there to explain what was written down 20 years ago. And I think that that's one of the things that um, – that's one of the ways that you can perhaps that is, affect the case. That is true. Yeah, and and that's true. But again, I I see even when you give context, 
You know, people, Mm -hmm. sometimes people just want to believe what they want to believe. So it doesn't matter what context you give them. Um, But, um, you know, that's interesting. I I was working with an attorney to prepare a witness for a deposition. And the witness was like, oh, well, I have these notes. I'll take them in and I'll testify from that. And the attorney's like, no, (laughs) don't have those anywhere near you during the deposition. This is in a civil right. case, not a criminal case, right, right. but yeah. a civil case. And they you know, no, 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 <laughs> you don't want to do that. A civil case, right? We're, we're mm-hmm. talking about money and not freedom, so it's just you know different. Yeah, different standards of discovery. And well, and there also it it may be well. I mean, te- when you're testifying from a deposition in a deposition, you're supposed to be testifying from your personal knowledge not from right. notes that you've written down <laughs> right. because right. you can't remember that much. <laughs> but um, it, but there may be other things in the notes that are not discoverable that are, you know, privileged or work product because he was taking notes as he was meeting. And so there may be, you know, privileged information in those notes. <laughs> That right, and work products and other things, but you know, for me, we're we're it's different for us because we're public servants. So everything right. we do is could possibly be a public record, but certainly everything we do is possibly discoverable based on whether it's it's exculpatory or not. Right, and I, you know, I do agree. I've always kind of cringed when notes are new evidence and found, and and they show this, that, and the other thing. And I think you know if they had produce those during the original prosecution yep, and, and this had been addressed to the jury mm-hmm. it would not have been it wouldn't have become an issue so but different departments handle it different ways and I know there's one in Texas that still they, they take the notes they write their report and then the department gets the notes and they have no idea where they go. Really? Yeah. That's, that's an interesting. And the officer, the officer turns them over once he once he turns in the report, and that it's in someone else's hands. He has no idea. I I don't know. I think it's a sheriff's 18, office. Eighteen thousand different. Yeah, eighteen thousand different <laughs> law enforcement agencies in this country, and they're all a little different. Yeah, and you know they they may go into the file and they may be they it's just the officer no longer has possession of them. And there are other departments where the notes belong to the detective or the officer, not the department. Right, which is interesting. That, so that, that's an interesting concept considering you're a public servant on the public dime. The notes are right, you know. Different cultures. Different cultures. (laughs) Yeah. And that's something um, I think, you know, pieces and parts of what works well or what what works for you in your system. And And I think that people have to understand that, though, sometimes. Yeah, the experiences are different in Detroit or, you know, a small jurisdiction in Texas 
that gets, you know, that has two detectives that have handle everything and they have about seven cases a year. The way they do things is going to be different. Absolutely. And and I think it's also important for the public to remember that different court rulings throughout the country can often sometimes be contradictory. So what might be required of you in one part of the country may not be required of you in another part of the country, and then different laws might have different standards. So right, it may not just be about culture and norms and practices. It might be about the jurisprudence in your community and then also the codification of your community's beliefs and values and norms. Right. And that's something too, and and I think that's uh that's a good uh a good topic to go into. We we may actually finish a show on this one because it's been a great informative episode. Uh the constitutional principles that govern police work whether it's on the street or a murder case or a burglary case or an armed robbery case. Um, first of all, presumption of innocence. There, there are individuals out there in the public who think that police officers have to presume that everybody's innocent. Is that accurate? Um, so I think it's important to realize that really – Police officers should just be collecting the evidence as it is and presenting it. But to back it up even a little bit more is that remember the Constitution sets the baseline standards. These are the rights that are inalienable to us, right? These are the rights. This is like the absolute minimum that your community can give you as a citizen protections from the government. And then each individual state gets to give their citizens a little bit more protection, and then each little jurisdiction can give more protection, and then the courts can rule differently. So that by the time you get down to each, you might be, although we all have that baseline standard, right? We have all that, that Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, that Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable search and seizure, that First Amendment right to freedom of the press, religion, and speech. Each individual state might give you more or less depending on their own beliefs, culture, politics, and then the courts too. So um, to go back to your original question as to whether all officers, whether officers are required to believe that everybody is presumed innocent, I think that we are required to give everybody a just and complete investigation. And that's, I think that that should be our, our standard and our goal, to give everybody a, a just and complete investigation. And, and I think that makes it palatable on both sides, both the victim side and the accused side. Um, if, if you know that your investigation was complete and just, I think that everybody can um, be more accepting of the results, whatever they may be. Okay. That's that's fair and reasonable. Um, I I I think under it'd be kind of hard for police to presume everybody is innocent and then have to meet reasonable doubt in order to be able to mm-hmm. even talk to them. You know, you have to have a right. little bit, of, and and some of it's experience and what you've seen, perhaps what a person's prior criminal record might be. That would lead you to say, "Well, he could have done this." Right, and that's all. I think I think that's a valid point, and that that's all information gathering, right? So I'm I'm making decisions based on the best information I have at this time. 
So mm-hmm. if this person's modus operandi, their method of operation, the, the way that they conduct themselves, the way that they commit crimes is substantially similar to this crime, and they live next door, then it might um, be reasonable for me to believe that they could be somebody that I need to talk to in the course of my investigation. Right. Right. And that is the purpose of an investigation. Absolutely. To collect the facts as they are. And and it it might not be him, but it might be somebody that has a beef with him. And if you don't talk to him, you'll never know. That's why you got to conduct investigations. Nothing wrong with talking to people. Nothing wrong with just trying to collect as much information as you can that's pertinent and germane to the investigation and then documenting it accordingly. That's that's really the crux of what we do. Right. Be it science, witness statements, surveillance, it's all information, right? And we're gathering it mm-hmm. from all the sources we can possibly gather it from. Right. Now, also, do you have um, – well – would you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt prior to making an arrest? So no. So we make an arrest based on probable cause. Right? Probable cause is described as 50% plus one. It's almost your preponderance of evidence standard um, in civil court. And we will attempt to gain as much information as we can. And then typically, especially for bigger cases, we'll present our information to a independent magistrate or judge and allow them to decide whether or not to issue an arrest warrant for that person. Now, sometimes we can make arrests. Obviously, we can make arrests on the spot when we see things. Um, But oftentimes, especially in cases of homicide uh, investigations or rapes, uh, we'll often seek a search warrant even when we got the guy, if you say, you know, dead to rights. Like, he's right there. He got him. He's standing with the guy with the gun. He confesses, da-da-da. We'll still go seek an arrest warrant before we actually bring him over to be booked into the jail and and um, you know it's it's important to I think allow that secondary review and it's also important mm-hmm. to allow um, to allow that accused um, to finally have somebody that's not so intimately involved in the investigation taking a look at what's what's going on with the case so that independent right. magistrate is really a crucial part of that um moving that case forward from investigative stage to arrest stage. Okay. All right. And then on searches, um, I'm just going to propose different scenarios. Uh, Of course, you can get – you can search with the consent or you can get a warrant. Correct. Correct. And And, um, if you – yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, if if you really kind of look at the crux of the um, Fourth Amendment, any search without a warrant is considered unreasonable. So it's the burden is upon the state um, to. And, and look, I, I can again hear my friends out there screaming at me, but think about it. Any search without a warrant is unreasonable. So it's the burden upon you to demonstrate that you had probable cause to affect that search. And and the vast majority of officers understand probable cause and understand um, how to establish probable cause. But in our department, we feel that it's always best to, if you have the opportunity to, if you can do so safely and effectively, to get a search warrant 
prior to affecting a search. Um, it's just a, it's a better practice. Now there's other things, for instance, search incident to arrest. If I arrest somebody, I can search them because before I bring them to jail or even put them in the back of the seat of the police, I want to make sure that they don't have anything that's going to hurt me or any kind of contraband on them. Um, mm-hmm. But typically speaking, um, you know, we, especially in high, in those cases where we're really asking for substantial penalties, we'll seek search warrants before we attempt to search something if the situation allows us to do so safely. Okay. All right. And that's, you know, because a person who can, a person who gives consent can later on say, well, yeah, but I don't feel like, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I felt like I had to, but I didn't really want to. So that, that is interesting. Yeah. And, and that, that way, if you, you know, if you got a search warrant, there is no question. Whatever the facts contained upon that warrant, as long as they're factually accurate, they can be reviewed by other people to determine those. But uh, an independent magistrate or a judge, you know, um, determine that there yeah. was sufficient probable cause to allow you to search that person's place, house, affect papers or things. And now if you did not – if you knew you did not have probable cause at that point in an investigation – would you go ahead and search with consent, or would you continue the investigation to try to develop? It's, it's really case. Or is that kind of a game? It, it's yeah. a game time decision. Like if if you know it's your last dead end, um, you might ask for consent. But if you still got rocks that you can turn over, if you still got doors that you can open. And you can continue your investigation. I mean, the thing about there's no statute of limitation on murders, right? There's no prescription period on murders and, and rapes and aggravated kidnappings in Louisiana. Um, and so you have time is on our side, right? Time is on our side to continue the investigation, make sure we get it right. Because once you pull the trigger, you can't go back and undo bad searches, right? It just all gets thrown right. out. Um, and then any. <clears throat> Things stemming from that, the fruit of the poisonous tree theory, anything stemming from that bad search also gets thrown out. So you Correct. Really, it's kind of like a crime scene. You only get one chance to do it right, so you better do it right the first time. Right, exactly. All right. So that's very interesting because there's a case in Texas where a woman disappeared. The detectives did not feel they had sufficient probable cause to get a search warrant for the apartment where the victim and her fiance lived mm-hmm. and they did mm-hmm. not request consent to search the apartment and they've been criticized for that but the way that you frame yeah. it you know that it makes sense that they wouldn't risk if they did find incriminating evidence and he Said, oh well, I didn't really mean to. I didn't really want to consent, but they didn't. They made me think I didn't have a choice. Then, right, you know, they could have lost any evidence that they found. Right, absolutely. You know, these are we're human beings making game time decisions based on the best information that we have at the time, and it's 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 really easy to sit back and look. The egregious stuff, we can all agree on the egregious stuff. It's the shades of gray where you were making information based on what you knew in, say, 1984, as opposed to what we all know in 2019. 
they, it's, it's easy mm-hmm. to look back in hindsight and say they missed this, they missed that. Um, I think that when you're in that moment and you're trying to do the best you can to make good decisions to protect the rights of the accused and also seek, you know, justice for the uh, the victimized, it's a, it's a tough balance, and that's why it's not for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And then I have some that's examples. That you mentioned um, that. Yeah. I was going to say that's interesting that you mentioned that case because, you know, she was missing her home. It's really important to remember <laughs> there is not an exception to the search warrant for crime scene. There's no crime scene exception to the search warrant, right? And it's mm-hmm. something that we we have to be cognizant of, right? So um, there's a case, the Louisiana case of State v. Thompson, like 1984 or 5 or something like that, where um, – the detectives went in. A woman shot her husband and took a bunch of pills to try and kill herself. And and to give you a really limited fact scenario, left a suicide note. Da da da. They go in. They, everybody goes to the hospital. And dead. She goes to the hospital. Um, the detectives search the house. They find the gun. They find all sorts of incriminating evidence. Well, it was her house as well as his house, so she has an expectation of privacy, right? Well, the detectives' argument was searching the crime scene, and they went to drawers and things of that nature. All the physical evidence against her was suppressed because there is no exception to a search warrant for crime scenes. If you're on a uh-huh. crime scene and it's in a private area, a house, a car, um, you have an a expectation that, yeah. and we do, we'll stop and go get a search warrant before we go further because it may look like a home invasion gone bad, but what if it was a fake home invasion set up by the husband who also has an expectation private in that residence? So, We'll we'll almost always stop and get search warrants. Um, Correct. On scenes like that, when the victim is not there to tell us that you know it was strangers that I had no business in the house, but in, specifically murders, right? Because your victim can't tell you, that, right? You know, this Correct. is my house. I live here by myself. Yes, please. You know, process the scene. Correct. And but even like you said, even if it's even if it. You know, you've got somebody saying it's a home invasion. You still want to get a search warrant because if you find anything that says otherwise, yep. yeah, it's, it's going to be out. We, we kind of <laughs> if you didn't have probable cause to do the search. Correct. We take the stance of just err on the side of the search warrant. Mm-hmm. All right, hey, that is quick. interesting. Real quick, yes. Lisa, I just thought about something when you said that. So I told you I've been kind of watching the OJ thing this past week and so on and so forth. So question, what in, uh, because of what you just said, why was uh, Furman's evidence allowed when he, you know, without a probable cause search warrant, just went into OJ's house on Rockingham? Just a question, just one, what made that difference? That's, that was exigence. I, I know. <laughs> so we would have stopped at the gate and gotten a search warrant. Perhaps there were some exigent circumstances there. Um, I know. I, I believe that they were restrained, right? So did he still have rights to that property? I'm not 100% there. Or they could have established that there was probable cause there. There's, there could be a thousand exceptions to that. Yeah. Thousand, but there's a number of exceptions as, to that search warrant requirement. As I okay. recall. But I would rather get the search warrant and go forward. Right. As I recall, I think they were outside. They were ringing the bell. 
Nobody was answering. They had seen blood on the pavement outside the vehicle. Right. And they, they did not know things. whether OJ was also a victim of whoever yeah, had in killed that case you Nicole. Got She's got, you know, preservation. And of so he was, yeah, in that case, you went. he was entering the property solely for the purpose of determining if there was another victim. And once he determined that OJ wasn't there, I think he talked to Cato and the daughter. He left mm-hmm. the premises and they obtained a search warrant. Okay. Right. At a later point. I don't think it was even necessarily that day. If that's the case, I think that sounds completely appropriate. You know, you preservation of life is always our number one concern is public safety. So you go in you right. know, circumstances, you make sure that everybody's okay, you maintain the situation, then you can always back out and get a search warrant before you actually conduct a real thorough search, right? At that point, it's more of a preservation of life situation. Correct. And that's another interesting thing on searches. Um, A lot of cases you see um, there's an initial search and then a second search and, and some piece of evidence is found and maybe a third search Another piece of evidence is found, um, sometimes performed by detectives, sometimes performed by CSIs. But is that, you know, kind of like layers of searching? You do a cursory visual, and then you do a more you mean large more object, yeah. so, and then you start tearing stuff apart. Yeah, I think that it's all case specific, but I think that that's a really good way to look at it is that you start from the biggest, widest lens and you start narrowing it down to the smaller areas. And, you know, you can search for whatever is reasonable. So if I'm looking for a bullet, I can look almost anywhere in the house because a bullet can be hidden almost anywhere in the house, right? Whereas if I'm mm-hmm. looking for a safe, well, maybe I can't look almost anywhere in the house. So. I think that's a good way to look at it in those layers and layers of, um, of of searching from kind of the widest lens to the most narrow lens. Right. So And so finding something on the third search, something like a cigarette butt, is not evidence of tampering or, or planting evidence or anything of that nature. It's just that, you know, that's where you started moving furniture and underneath right. the furniture, you found the cigarette butt. Right, and a lot of times you want to document the house as you find it, right, and then document it again when you find the evidence, and then document it again after you pick up the evidence. So, you know, you might you might on that one search warrant search a room three or four times, or you might have your partner might search the room after you because you don't give up the house yet. You know, you move on to the next room, and then your partner comes in, and you might have missed something. I mean, it's I don't I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that, you know, as you continue to focus in and and look in different areas of the house that you could continue to find additional information. Right. And also another another interesting question that kind of you talked about, you know, you still have control of the house or vehicle or whatever. How long is there any general rule for how long you maintain custody of evidence like a vehicle a residence, a business, 
a street, Generally, uh, you know, are, are there rules of thumb? Yeah, it's all based on reasonableness. There, there's almost no firm okay. rules set up by the courts. It's based on reasonableness. So what's reasonable? So if, you know, I mean, we, we might process a house that might take us two hours or two days. You know, if the person was a hoarder mm-hmm. compared to if the person just moved in and all he's got is a mattress and a box spring, right? It's just, it's just what's reasonable on and as long as you can articulate, you can explain why it took you two hours or two days. It, that's you know that's kind of what the courts look at. Okay. And then once you but finish searching, hard part you don't that. maintain it until there's a there's a trial and a defense attorney, and you know don't necessarily keep a vehicle for an indefinite period of time. Once you're finished processing it to the limits of whatever science is, then you return it to whoever owns it. Typically, yep, absolutely. Um, yeah. So when people get killed in rental cars all the time, we'll process that car, we'll go to it with a fine-tooth comb with the advanced crime scene and the detectives, and then eventually we'll call the rental car company, they'll send a tow truck out, they'll tow it. Usually they have to total it out, right? Um, mm-hmm. Same thing, we'll, we'll tow them to the to the auto pound, and a lot of times, especially with vehicles that people are killed in, the insurance company just takes it over because it's just you're not going to return that to a family. It's just too traumatic mm-hmm. to see what we see in those vehicles. Um, but in a vehicle, in a, a house, absolutely, we'll turn it back over to whatever responsible party is responsible for that house, and then you know they'll move on from there. <clears throat> okay, all right, because there are some people that think if a crime occurs in a vehicle or a vehicles involved in some way or if a residence or a building or a street that you know police should maintain control of it for however long it takes for a defense attorney to come in to see it for themselves and yeah, so I think it's to, to my counter to that would be it's first off some of these cases aren't solved so I would have to hold a vehicle indefinitely, right? I think that as mm-hmm. long as you properly document everything, good photographs, good sketches, good collection techniques, yeah. as long as you properly document things, and now with the officers with the body on cameras, they can even see the state of the vehicle when the officer walked up to it, the state of the vehicle when the car was towed away, the state of the house when the officers first entered. It It makes it, I think it makes it for a valid argument to say that we're not going to hold it indefinitely. I mean, somebody's house, right? right? People live there. Um, somebody's vehicle. It's just, it's, you know, as long as you're documenting it really thoroughly and and by the book, I think that you're giving that defense attorney as much information as they could get by being there and looking at it um, in person. Correct. Well, and and my argument, although I am kind of prosecution oriented in my way of thinking is if you're involved in a a crime and you want your defense attorney to be able to look at a vehicle, residence, business, building, then turn yourself in so that your defense attorney can be there right there on the front end. You can start start building your defense and making your discovery motions and getting court orders right. Because if it's an unsolved case, who am I to keep somebody's vehicle forever if it was involved in seeing on right. robbery, right? It's yeah, it's, this, it's not the same. It's not reasonable. The, the, no, 
the same case that I was talking about where the woman disappeared and uh, they didn't search her apartment that she shared with the fiance, the vehicle that she was driving on her way to work was found abandoned near a high school. Her body was found in kind of a rural area that was starting to be developed into a housing development. And the person who was eventually identified by DNA testing was not arrested for a year or identified for a year. And his advocates continued to complain that the vehicle that she was driving that was brought in after it was found at the high school was returned to her fiancé who owned the vehicle in Texas um, six days after her body was found. And they complained that his attorney never got a chance to look at that vehicle. Yes, but unfortunately, he didn't have an attorney at that time. There was nobody signed to the case. No. So I think that that's just, you know, it's, it's so, yeah. the defense attorney's job to be the and, best advocate they can for their client. So that's, that sounds like that's right. what that he, he should have. When he when he heard on the news that she was dead, he should have gone and turned himself in, and then his attorney would have had a chance. But uh, right. he was identified by by DNA a year later, a little bit under a year later. Wow. So, um, and then I I think we were going to go into um, uh, some. Investigative principles, but I think we've kind of covered and touched on those. And then the types of evidence, I, I don't think we need to go into um, because we're getting close to the point where about, blog, blog talk radio cuts us maybe, off. Maybe the future. <laughs> ah. Yeah, that would be great. Policing? That would be perfect. Rap, right? And um, so well, also cool. another thing though that's uh, that's that is interesting is um uh no I, no the future policing would be great topic to end on but I would love to invite you back maybe talk oh, more I'd, about I'd the crime lab and then fun. we can talk about the types of evidence yep that would be fun because Michael has has not made a peep in almost 2 hours Sorry, except for a single question <laughs> I'm and sure, that means I'm soaking all this in. <laughs> so and then we'll we'll go into the detective uh motive means and opportunity identifying a suspect. Although you've kind of talked about those kind of things too. Um because you just gather information and put it together. So I think we sort of touched right. on those in the beginning. Um so yeah, the future of policing. So I think that there's some really cool technology that's coming online, right? Um, I'm going to use the word AI, artificial intelligence. Let me give me an opportunity to explain what I think some of the interesting things are. Um, I went to a a talk recently, and some of the body-worn camera innovators, right, the body-worn camera manufacturers, right now if you have, Mm -hmm. say, let's say 10 police officers on a murder scene, and they have their cameras on for three hours, right? That's 30 hours of footage that somebody eventually has to watch to make sure that 
you know, nothing happened that could be exculpatory, that nothing was missed, that nothing, you know, got slipped through the cracks. That's a lot of footage to watch, and that's a real burden on the defense mm-hmm. and on the prosecution. So one of the things that they're talking about doing and that they're, they're doing right now, they're not talking about it, they're testing it, is having artificial intelligence watch those videos, produce reports based on what it heard and saw, and then allowing the officer to read it and kind of approve it at the end of their shift so that cause it's just easier and faster to read a report than it is to watch 30 hours of video. So to leverage technology to increase efficiencies in the backside of investigations because some detectives somewhere is having to watch 30 hours a day and then some prosecutor and some defense side. So leveraging that technology is pretty cool, which I think is cool. Maybe some people might think that's boring artificial intelligence, but I think that's probably no, it's, artificial intelligence it's, what initially comes to mind. It's very cool, but all I can imagine is Alexa, Google, and Cortana who can never seem to understand a word I say. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair. That's why you have to have that human, that officer still has to read the report that the AI bots generated to kind of give it his his or her approval. And then would they be interested right now? Go ahead. Would they be interested in hiring me to double check the AI? Because I'll watch 30 hours of footage. And take notes. Feel free to get in touch with Exxon, Exxon Technologies. Um, you know, Kaiser International is really the one that's. that's but that that okay. sounds like a. No. To me, it sounds like a miserable existence. But it's you know, to each his own. Um, to each his own. And, and then no, that's the, other, the kind of thing I like. Right. The other cool thing that um, that they're actually testing right now in the field, in five or six states, is this technology called rapid DNA. Called rDNA. So right now, you mm-hmm. take, somebody gets arrested. You take their DNA from them. You know, you take a Google swab at the at the time of booking, like fingerprints, photograph DNA. You send it to the crime lab. You know, usually your state police crime lab. Um, they process the DNA. They upload it to CODIS, and then maybe it gets a match. Maybe it doesn't. But this could take weeks or months, right? Well, after Correct. DNA. Because if you're taking DNA from a person directly, you're going to have a good sole source. You're going to have an abundance of biological material because you're taking it right from them. It's not like a mixture like on a scene or something like that. And you're uploading it to the system. And so rapid DNA, they can do it. They can put it into this machine, this CRISPR, in the booking area. It will process that person's DNA, upload it to the system, and you might get hits, CODIS hits on people before they even get out of jail for whatever that offense is. So what if you had a serial rapist traveling across, you know, the country, and he's never been arrested for something that was a codis eligible offense, and now before he gets out of jail, you've got codis hits on him, and you can now, you know, start doing uh, confirmation buckle swabs. You can start connecting him to devices. It's just it's a really cool technology to think about, like that you can process DNA in an hour. As opposed to sending it off to a centralized lab and processing it weeks or months later, it's just that I think that the that the advances in science and especially the advances in DNA in the last twenty years make me really hopeful for what the advances in DNA are in the next twenty years. You know, you used to need this right. big old pool of blood or semen to get a usable profile. Now mm-hmm. they get to touch DNA if. if you know, you stick your hand in my back pocket and steal my wallet, 
I can see my pants are lab. They'll swab my back pocket and they'll get the skin cells that you slept off when you stuck your hand in my pocket and tell me who you were. Right. To, to know that that's common practice now just really makes me excited about what could be common practice in the future. Right. Correct. That I've read about the rapid DNA, but I think it's currently the FBI is trying to decide if they want it in CODIS. Yep. So right now they are piloting it in five states. The FBI is piloting it in five okay. states. Okay. Um, and and they're testing the validity of the science and the validity of um, the pilot before they really start to decide if they're going to allow real-time CODIS uploads. Okay. All right. Yeah, I've read that that's come up in that Stephen Avery case out of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Except yeah, that the defense attorney the wanted to use it on uh, evidence samples and bones, um, which is it's not meant for it's not meant for evidence samples and bones. It's meant to be a single source, uh, buccal, buckle, whatever you call it. Not not a potentially mixed profile of touch DNA and multiple profiles from jurors who handled the evidence during the trial. Uh, right. And that's the only right. thing, that's the thing with touch DNA. When you, when you have a current case, like somebody taking your wallet out of your pants or your purse or stealing your phone. But when you have an old case where they want to swab a murder weapon for touch DNA, but the case was tried in 1995 and nobody wore gloves during the trial, and the jurors right. and the judge and the court reporter and attorneys all handled the evidence. And the clerk of court. And, and the, yeah, that, yeah that. and the clerk of court, and it's been stored all in one box together. Um, that's where you run into potentially getting, even across different samples, identical multiple profiles. Mm-hmm that don't belong to the person who's been convicted. Absolutely. And, you know, some of that, you just got to look at the reasonableness of the argument, right? So if yeah. it was collected, test fired, and handled by 50 to 60 people in the course of an investigation between jurors, attorneys, you know, forensic science, all those people, it's just it's not reasonable to expect that that original depositor of that DNA being the suspect would still be there and not overridden or destroyed or uh, deteriorated because it wasn't either properly stored or collected. So it's it's right. our, our legal system is based on reasonableness. Right. And our legal system's got to keep evolving, and it evolves more slowly than sometimes the world mm-hmm. of police work at clients. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I know that from – the civil field um, because we've had technology type issues come up and being doing research. It's like, I might find one case out of New Jersey that has no application in Louisiana, (laughs) right? but that's the only one that mentions the technological issue that we're, we're dealing with. So, but maybe I maybe AI can. That would be great. 
AI, I need to know about this. Okay. <laughs> of course, I always get, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't know what you're asking me. <laughs> <laughs> but think about how much better it is than the non-existent voice to text. Right. Well, there's so also we'll, the we'll continue to evolve. The other interesting thing, Alexa, Google, and Cortana are always listening. And so that's right. another aspect, the murder with Alexa yeah. and the that potential that the murder was on Amazon servers. Yeah. I followed that case for a little while. Um, and I, But I don't recall what the outcome was. I think they eventually – said there was nothing on the tape or nothing on the server. Yeah, it's but interesting how much I, we share our private information with businesses. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you know, because we want to be able to say, Alexa, you know, what's the weather today? I don't ask Alexa to order anything. And I, I have Alexa in my bedroom and I don't talk unless I talk in my sleep so I think I'm pretty safe although sometimes when a, a commercial comes on TV Alexa says I don't understand what you're asking me and the day she starts with a maniacal laugh she's going in the trash <laughs> yeah because <laughs> there, there are some freaky videos of that on YouTube And um, you do not – don't watch them at night. <laughs> Fair. Because I'm one of those Fair people, enough. freaky Alexa, oh, yay. <laughs> and then I regretted it. So, But that would be interesting if Alexa – you know, if, if Amazon had a recording of everything said between a suspect and a victim. It certainly would be a um, – Useful piece of information to include in an investigation. To get okay. Well, I'll I'll I'm going to leave a handwritten note that Amazon has my permission. If anything ever happens to me, to release everything I have on Alexa <laughs> <laughs> to NOPD, <laughs> so that Amazon will just give it to you. Well, we would appreciate that. Also, if you could file that affidavit yeah. with your attorney, that would also be helpful. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'll I'll do the affidavit tomorrow. <laughs> I work for attorneys, so you know I've got like my pick of notaries, <clears throat> and two out of three of them have their seals. So, <laughs> but uh, this has been really. Incredibly, Michael, I, this is one of the best interviews that we have ever done. Well, thank you. All. I really, I really enjoyed having this conversation. And kind of, you know, having the ability to just explain what we do. You know, it's not magic. It's just detectives and investigators trying their best to gather all the information they can and then put it into some sort of usable format. Right. Well, it has been, and I I would love for you to come back, um, probably later in the summer or early in the fall, because we're we're getting ready to start a 
crazy serial killer case. Um, and we interviewed the detective from the second Biggie Tupac investigation on another oh, really? show. I'm going to send you that link tomorrow. His yeah, name is John Keating. And so I'll send you that link. Um, it is a, That was a great show. I did watch it on USAA. And he wrote a book about the investigation, which I have on my Kindle. I'd lend it to you. <laughs> I, I look forward to listening to that. Uh, that, that interview. But thank, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. And um, I will reach out to you and uh, Officer Miller uh, to set yep. a new date. And we will talk about the crime lab. Sounds good. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Michael, up there in Arkansas. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you again. Have a great night. You too. Good night. All right. Good night. Wow, that was that was actually really informative. I mean, you talked about me being quiet, but like you learned so much stuff, and then like you said that about the thing, and automatically, you know, because I've been watching so much OJ stuff, <clears throat> automatically mm-hmm. thought about Furman, and I knew they had said that, you know, uh, Furman had, you know, suspected that OJ may be a victim of something because they found the blood, I believe, on the Bronco actually. And then, you know, Correct. I believe I believe he talked to Kato Kalen and then was walking behind Kalen's little guest house, and that's when he found the glove. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I don't recall the facts on that, but, yeah, it was pretty, pretty similar. But he was there, and I think what he did was he saw the glove, which was, you know, I think it was behind by an air conditioner. Cato was telling him about the thumps he heard. Yeah. And that's when he right. went out to look at the air conditioner and saw the glove, but he left it there. Mm-hmm. And once they got the search warrant for the property is when that's it was when finally collected. Right. But the interesting thing about that, and I think we talked about this when we talked about OJ, um, there were multiple people who were at the murder scene prior to Furman ever arriving who mm-hmm. could have been put on the stand to testify that they never saw a second glove. They only ever saw one glove. And right. for some and reason... Darden and Clark didn't put even one of them on the stand. We could we could do a whole show on the mistakes Darden and Clark made as far as that uh, trial goes. I mean, just look at the fact that, honestly, Marcia Clark gave up half of her prosecution because they sold their story to one of the tabloid news shows that was on at the time. I mean – there's a lot that could be. Well, that was one of that was a that was a a key prosecution witness, but that you I mean that wasn't the prosecutor's fault. She's right, the one who right. told the story, and then they couldn't use her. Okay, okay. See, I thought it was a person. That was what happened. The way, 
the way the FX series made it sound, it sounded like a personal preference. Clark said, I believe, to Darden at one point on the show, she said, well, she sold the story, so I don't believe that makes her credible anymore, so we're not going to use her. Or something to that. Well, no, that is exactly that is exactly what happened. Once the woman sold that story to hard copy, I believe it was. Yeah, I think it was. Because I was an adult. <laughs> I remember this case. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> once she sold that to hard copy, she destroyed her, her credibility. Right. And so, um, and, and Marsha Clark was absolutely correct. Had they put that woman on the stand, Cochran would have tore her a new butt. Oh, I think what happened, long and the short of it is they had the Clark and Darden had so much DNA evidence Mm -hmm. between the crime scene and OJ's house and his vehicle that they didn't conceive that a jury would not convict him. Well, and I think that's the, the the bottom line with that case. I think you just got to say, hey, you know, there was an absolutely no way, unfortunately, that, that they were going to get a conviction out of that because of the atmosphere in Los Angeles at the time. I, uh, you know, I, 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 I truly and don't believe. Part part of that was a tactical decision. That was a poor tactical decision. Marsha Clark mm-hmm. thought any women would be sympathetic to Nicole. She did not right. realize that African-American women are not going to be sympathetic to a white woman married to a black man. Well, and there was this show that ESPN did, so I'm not sure you've gotten to see it because, you know, ESPN is sports, and I'm not sure how much you watch ESPN, but they did OJ Made in America, and it was an eight-hour-long documentary broken up into like four or five parts. But in one of the parts, we had one of the uh, jurors, or actually they ended up with two or three of the jurors, but one of the women said something that I thought was interesting. She said that she made up her mind not because the glove didn't fit, but because Darden allowed himself to be played by Cochran in forcing OJ to wear the glove and then, you know, she said basically Darden fumbled, which, I mean, there's arguments that can be made that Darden the case, and as did Clark, but I, I, I just believe Well, that no, but you know no what? Way. The jurors, I, I've heard, and I haven't seen a juror make the statement, but I think Brad alluded to it. A juror said that the verdict was payback for Rodney King. That simply proves that those particular jurors violated their oaths. That proves juror I mean, misconduct. I, I, I can tell you have watched it because not only did they say it was payback for Rodney, but they had a gentleman on the jury that they found out after he did this and after the trial that he was a former member of the Black Panthers Party. But, uh, you know, he threw up the uh, raised fist at O.J., on the way out of the uh, on the way out of the courtroom. So I mean, right. if that's what you're going up against, the deck's pretty stacked. Right, and the the sad part is, as had OJ been convicted, and the misconduct had been in favor of the prosecution, 
he had recourse because it was against the prosecution. There was no recourse. They cannot appeal. Right. The right. only way and, they could know, have appealed was if OJ bribed all the jurors, and, and they found and been, mm-hmm. evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of that. But even then, they could probably only ever charge him with tampering with the jury. They could not sure. retry him on the on the murder charges. Well, and then you look at then you look at the fact that you know there has been some semblance, and I'm sure uh, Mr. Goldman would disagree, but there's been some semblance of uh, justice, you know, the uh, the civil trial and then uh, kind of karma uh, with the whole situation in Nevada. But, you know, it is what it is. Now he's out. He's living his life yeah. and unfortunately making money off of exactly what we're doing here. Right. Exactly. So, um, all right. Well, that was that was a great show. I think that's going to go probably that's in the top five. I want to say of shows oh. that we've done. Um, and the thing that I like about Commander Gurnan and the more or less new attitude of NOPD is that transparency, because I. I think I told you I met Commander Garnon when I attended a an event at the New Orleans Mounted Unit. Right, right. He is the commander of the 8th District, which also involved command of the Mounted Unit, and he was there. And he and I talked toward the end of the event for, I want to say, probably about a half an hour, 45 minutes. Well, and definitely one thing I want to talk with him about in the next show, which, I mean, kind of sort of doesn't have really much to do about the actual uh, about the actual crimes and stuff that he's investigating, was just his uh, experience as a police officer with the crime that went on during, you know, as he called it, the storm uh, earlier in the podcast. But, you know, talk about a little bit about their uh, situation when Katrina happened and things like that. Okay. I you know what? I will reach out to him tomorrow and ask him about that and ask him if he cuz some a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about their experiences. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine. Um <clears throat> although, you know, I have to say I came down to visit my dad in October, uh, early October after Katrina. And I remember every place I went when I saw police officers, I like thanked them because them being there enabled my dad to come back to his home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we can listen bow on this and uh, we'll definitely talk this week about possibly getting him back because I really he is a wealth of knowledge for sure he is and I I just like I said the the transparency 
um, is just awesome. <clears throat> and, you know, and he also, uh, he, I think he also helps dispel some of the myths. You know, you, you probably believe that cops and district attorneys just want to throw people in prison. I mean, in some cases. And, and his, pers- his perspective kind of, you know, gives you a different, a different perspective. You know, that's not what they're doing, but they're trying to do, you know, a fair investigation, but they're also trying to bring justice for a victim. Absolutely. And I think all, all too often our criminal justice system – loses sight of the victims and the the victims' family members. So, but I will definitely, um, I will reach out to him tomorrow and um, uh, give him some dates. It'll probably be September because we're going to do Edward Edwards. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's put a bow on her. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us next week on Monday, June 26, 2019 or June 25th, 2019, at 8 p.m. Central, for a discussion of State of Arkansas versus Christina Marie Riggs. On November 4th, 1997, Riggs killed her children, Justin and Shelby, then unsuccessfully tried to take her own life. She claimed that she didn't want the children, who had different fathers, to be split up after her death. Riggs pled not guilty by reason of insanity and was convicted of capital murder in 1998. After her direct appeal concluded, Riggs waived her right to post-conviction relief and was executed on May 2, 2000. We'll talk about the crime, Riggs' history, and her desire to be executed, which was opposed by groups that included Amnesty International and the ACLU. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. <laughs>